0: The scripture reading for today is from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 16, and verses 13 to 28. It's printed for you there in the bulletin. Would you please rise as we give our attention to God's holy word? This is the word of God, Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples who do people say that the Son of Man is and they said some say John the Baptist others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets he said to them but who do you say that I am Simon Peter replied you are the Christ the Son of the Living God and Jesus answered him blessed are you Simon bar Jonah for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but on the things of man Then Jesus told his disciples if anyone would come after me Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me For whoever would lose would save his life shall lose it But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Bow with me in prayer. O God, as we come now to hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts, that we may humbly receive what you have to say to us today from your word. Open our eyes, that we may see Jesus, our divine Savior, in all his beauty and glory. Subdue our wills, that we may follow him. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew very slowly. It's been several years now and probably take a few more years to finish since I only am able to preach a few times a year. But now we're in Matthew chapter 16, which is one of the high points of Matthew's gospel. I'd like to just take a step back for a minute and get the big picture. Recall that I have said before, and some of you who were not here before won't know this, but I've said before, for those of you that recall, that the gospel of Matthew can be summarized as having two pillars at the beginning and at the end. So at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, of course, you have the first two chapters, which is the genealogy and the birth narrative. But really, the the Gospel gets going in Matthew chapter 3 with the baptism of Jesus. So that's the first pillar. And then the conclusion of Matthew's Gospel is the cross of Christ. Everything is leading towards the cross. And so you can imagine, then, that you have these two pillars. And everything that Jesus does and everything that Jesus says uh, between his baptism and his cross Uh, these are like little vignettes, little stories that are pinned to the clothesline, stretched out between those two pillars. All of the teachings of Jesus are connected to this great plan. It began with his baptism when he identified himself with his people in their state of sin, and he is committing himself to go to the cross, and then at the end, he finally lays down his life and offers the atonement for sin. But now I want to complicate that mental image a little bit and i want you to take the same idea of the two pillars but now change it to two pillars one on each side of the bank of a river and the gospel of matthew is the bridge spanning across the river today's passage matthew 16 is like a pillar a third pillar that's in the middle of the river holding up the bridge matthew 16 is the climax of the first half of the gospel And it's the turning point to the second half. In the first half of Matthew's gospel, we've been focused upon the identity of Jesus. And Jesus has been slowly revealing his identity uh, through his words and through his deeds. Matthew is focusing on those two things, the deeds of Jesus, his miracles, but also his words and how he went around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And Matthew even gives us a big block of teaching there uh, in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. So through his words through his teaching, and also through his deeds, his miracles, Jesus is slowly revealing that he is the Messiah. Um, for example, at the very beginning of the gospel, and after his baptism, uh, Jesus goes out and he preaches. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does he mean that the kingdom is at hand? Well, Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. And since he is here, therefore the kingdom itself is at hand. It won't actually be brought in in fullness until his death and resurrection. But all that he's doing now through his ministry leading up to the cross is letting you know that the king is here, and therefore the the kingdom is about to be brought in. What does Jesus do? He heals the sick, right, which is a sign of the forgiveness of sins, as well as it's a foretaste of the future resurrection of the body and when all things will be renewed. He also cast out demons, which is a sign of his power to, to plunder Satan's kingdom and to transfer individuals out of Satan's authority and into the kingdom of God. He even feeds the crowds. This happened twice, once in Matthew 14 and again in Matthew 15, which was another sign of the presence of the kingdom because this reminds you of Moses in the wilderness feeding the people of God with the manna from heaven. And so Jesus is the new Moses who's leading his people out through a new exodus, into the promised land so he's giving us all these things that imply that he is god's anointed king that he is the messiah but now in the passage we just read in verses 13 through 20 what has been only implied through all of his actions and through all of his teaching is now explicit now peter explicitly comes out and confesses jesus as the messiah my sermon today has two points First, we're going to look at verses 13 to 20, and the question that's being addressed there is, who do you say that Jesus is? And we know the answer is that he is the Messiah. Then in verses 21 to 23, the second point, we're going to ask another question, but what sort of Messiah is he? And the answer is that he is a suffering Messiah. We're not going to get to verses 24 through 28, but Lord willing, we'll do that in July when I have another chance to preach. So first point. Jesus is not simply one of the prophets. He's not simply a forerunner of the Messiah. Remember at this time the Jews had these ideas in their minds that John the Baptist or that Elijah was gonna come and prepare the way. Some even thought maybe Jeremiah would be a precursor to the coming of the Lord. And what, the, what Peter is saying is that no, we know you're not just a forerunner. We know you're not just a precursor. We know that you are the Christ, the Son, of the living God. You are the one that was promised long ago by the prophets. Remember how in Isaiah and Jeremiah there's all these prophecies about the child that would be born, about the king who was going to come. Uh, for example, in Jeremiah 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land and in his days judah will be saved and israel will dwell securely so there's this hope that god is going to send the long-awaited son of david and that he's going to be the king peter understands that that day has come the prophecies have been fulfilled he is the messiah which means the anointed one in the old testament only two individuals were anointed priests and kings. And both priests and kings were set apart as holy unto God and anointed with that special anointing oil because they were types of Christ. They were pictures of the Messiah to come. By saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, Peter is confessing that he is not only the final king, the long-awaited king, but that he is also the final priest. But he's not just a human priest or a human king. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of of God. What does that title mean, the Son of God? Well, it means that he is in the closest possible relationship to God. Remember in the Gospel of John, when Jesus called God his own father, that created such a response on the part of the Pharisees and the Jews. They they said, this man's blaspheming for calling God his own father. This implies an intimacy of relationship with God that is far beyond anything that any human being could have. He is the Son of God. Just as a human father begets a human son in his own image, so God the Father begat God the Son. And therefore the Son is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He has the same divine nature as the Father. Peter's confession is amazing. It's amazing that he has so much insight into who Jesus is. And so what does Jesus say in response? He says, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now we've heard Jesus use the word blessed before. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes at the beginning, he said, Blessed are, blessed are. One of them is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By saying that Peter is blessed, he's implying that, Peter, you are an heir of the kingdom of heaven. You're, you're blessed in the ultimate sense. You're not just blessed in some temporal sense of having some nice things here on this earth you're blessed in the ultimate sense of being an heir of eternal life you are a blessed possessor of the kingdom of heaven and it's because you understand because you see who i am you have seen past the outer veil of my flesh and you've seen the reality that i am the christ the son of god that's a wonderful encouragement for all of us to know that if you confess that jesus is the messiah the son of god then you are blessed. You have a blessing that no one else has. You have a blessing that is ultimate, that is eschatological. You have a blessing that implies that you are a member of the kingdom of God and that you are an heir of eternal life. And notice how Jesus goes on to say, You're blessed, Simon bar because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This knowledge of who Jesus is, this ability to have this insight into his true identity as the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, as the Son of the living God, this knowledge is a gift of grace. The natural mind of man is not able to perceive this. The natural mind of man cannot see it. Jesus says flesh and blood hasn't revealed it to you. By, By using this phrase flesh and blood, he's referring to humanity in its ordinary fallen natural state, The wisdom of the natural man cannot grasp this reality. It's only a gift of grace. God must open your eyes to see who Jesus truly is. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus says something astounding in verse 18. He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church now there's been lots of discussion about what is the rock that Jesus is referring to here now at one level we have to acknowledge that the rock is Peter this is clear because of the play on words in Greek it would say I tell you that you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church Now, it's even possible that, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that Jesus was even speaking in Aramaic at this time. And if he said it in Aramaic, then the two words for rock are identical. He would have said it this way, You are Kepha, and on this Kepha, I will build my church. The word for rock and the word for Peter in Aramaic are the same. But it's important to understand that when Jesus makes this declaration, it says, upon this rock... I will build my church. He's not referring to Peter as an individual, but rather to Peter in his role as the spokesman and leader of the disciples. And this is very clear if you look at the whole context. Remember, Jesus asked the disciples, plural, who do you you say, verse 15, that I am. The word you there in verse 15 is in the plural. So he's asking all the disciples, who do all of you disciples say that I am? But then in verse 16, instead of all the disciples answering, Peter, as the spokesman and the representative of the disciples, steps forward and says, you are the Christ. In other words, he's saying, we disciples all know that you are the Christ. We know that it's all the disciples who are making this confession, because at the very end, in verse 20, after Jesus finishes this, this wonderful statement about you are Peter and on this rock, he then says, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the christ so all the disciples believed that he was the christ so ultimately then this rock upon which jesus is going to build his church is not peter the man but rather it's the apostolic confession of jesus as the messiah does jesus build his church on one man it doesn't make sense just look about look look at what happens after jesus dies and rises from the dead Remember in Matthew 28, he gives the Great Commission. Does he give it just to Peter and says, "Okay, Peter, now that you're the rock, go out and and preach the gospel and disciple the nations? No, he gives that commission to all the disciples. And when you look at the book of Acts and you see how all the disciples, all the apostles went out and they were witnesses to Christ, witnesses to his death and resurrection, and they boldly proclaimed. It wasn't just Peter, but it was Peter and John. And it was all the disciples who were proclaiming Christ, risen from the dead, and calling upon people to believe upon him. So Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell refers to the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of Satan will not prevail against the kingdom of Christ. Look back in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus talks about the kingdom of Satan. In Matthew 12, this is when Jesus cast out a demon who were from a man that was blind and mute and after he healed him the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said wow could this be the son of David but then the Pharisees didn't want to believe that so they said it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons that this man casts out demons and then Jesus responds to this accusation by saying every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand and if satan casts out satan he is divided against himself how then will his kingdom stand so here jesus explicitly refers to the kingdom of satan and then he says but if i by the spirit of god cast out demons then the kingdom of god has come upon you so he's making this contrast then between the kingdom of god and the kingdom of satan and he's implying then that whenever he casts out a demon from someone, that's the kingdom of God advancing into the kingdom of Satan and rescuing someone that was under the dominion of Satan and transferring them into the kingdom of God. What a wonderful promise this is. Matthew 16, verse 18. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The kingdom of Satan will not prevail against the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ shall be successful. The kingdom of Christ shall never fail. Just think about today when we look at at the world around us. We see so many enemies of the kingdom of Christ, don't we? We see false religions. We see those that are enemies of Christ and the gospel. We even see confusion in the visible church. We see false teaching. We see so many things that make us wonder and worry. But Christ has given us this absolute promise, this absolute guarantee that the kingdom of Christ is stronger than the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of Satan cannot withstand the onslaught of the kingdom of Christ. That's an encouragement to us, isn't it? Isn't that a wonderful promise for us to take hold of and to believe Jesus is indeed the Christ. He is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed building his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, then Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The Roman Catholic Church assumes that the keys were given to Peter uh, as in his role as the bishop of Rome, as the first bishop of Rome. And therefore, it was given not only to Peter, but to all the bishops of Rome that come after Peter. The bishops of Rome are referred to as the popes, but that's what, they're it. that's what they are, is they're the bishops of Rome. But there's no evidence that Peter was the first bishop of Rome. It's true that he did die there under Nero, but there's no evidence that he was the first bishop of Rome. He was simply an apostle, like all the apostles. They weren't tied to one particular church. They went around preaching the gospel all over the place. Just like Paul, he planted many churches, but he wasn't the pastor of any particular church. And think about the book of Acts, because in the book of Acts, we see how this promise is fulfilled. How did Peter exercise the keys of the kingdom? It wasn't because he was set up as some sort of pope over the church. He didn't rule over the church like some sort of king. In fact, in the book of Acts, it almost seems as if James, the brother of the Lord, has more authority in the Jerusalem church, the mother church, at that time. What was Peter's role? Where do we see him using the keys? Well, it's in Acts chapter 10, is it not? In Acts chapter 10, when the Lord revealed in a vision to him that the Gentiles were not to be excluded, but that the doors of the kingdom of God were to be open to the Gentiles. And then Peter then came down off the the rooftop after the vision that was told to him to, to not call any man unclean. And what happened? He comes down from the roof and there at his doorstep is a messenger from the household of the Roman centurion Cornelius. The angel said, go to Cornelius' house and proclaim to him the good news of the gospel. For now, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. Peter used the keys of the kingdom to open the kingdom to the Gentiles. Who has the keys of the kingdom today? Well, it's the elders of local churches, the elders of local churches which open and shut the kingdom of God to people by church discipline. How do we know that? Well, turn over to Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus uses this same phrase. In verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And what's the context in which he uses it? It's the context of church discipline, right? If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then all is well. If he does not listen, then take two or three others along with you. So the whole process of church discipline which takes place in the local church is the way in which the keys of the kingdom are exercised today. And the key thing is, if you tie these two verses together, Matthew 16, verse 19, tying tying it back to Matthew 18, verse 18, What do you have you have a clear understanding of what is the basis upon which the elders are to open and shut and to loose and to bind the basis on which they're to do that is people's confession of faith in jesus as the messiah right when when prospective members come to the church and the elders interview them they're not asking them and interviewing them to find out about their views on politics or which party they're a member of They're not interviewing them to ask them what their views are on some fine point of theology. They're asking them, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God? And when church discipline happens, when someone is put out of the church, it's not because they wore the wrong hairstyle. It's not because they did something that made us upset. It's because they are living in a way that is inconsistent with their confession of faith in Jesus as the Messiah. I love this quote from A.A. Hodge. He was a 19th century Presbyterian theologian, and he said this. He said, a church has no right to make anything a condition of membership which Christ has not made a condition of salvation. That's the only test that we can have, and we see it right here in our text because Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah And then Jesus says, on this rock, on this foundation, on this apostolic confession of faith in the Messiah, I will build my church, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom to open and shut, to admit and to put out those who are in the church. What a wonderful statement this is. This whole paragraph is so glorious in the way it declares the deity of Christ, his authority as the Messiah, his great plan of salvation, how he's building the church. But then we turn to the second paragraph here in verses 21 to 23. And now all of a sudden there's an abrupt shift and a change. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. But now we have to ask, but what sort of Messiah is he? Verse 21 From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, Jesus has provided many hints so far that this might be his destiny. Even the very baptism of Jesus was his commission to go to the cross because he's identifying with his people in their sin, even though he has no sins to repent of yet he is taking their sin upon him. And so, logically, the very baptism of Jesus at the very outset is telling you that he's going to the cross. But it's still not clear. There have also been many hints in the narrative that Jesus has enemies and that there are people out there that are trying to kill him. I remember even very back at the beginning in Matthew chapter 2, uh, in the infancy narrative, King Herod tried to kill the baby Jesus. And, you know, Uh, Joseph and Mary had to go down to Egypt to escape. There are all these hints that the death of Christ is, is looming. There's a cloud on the horizon. Even the Pharisees have been plotting to kill him back in chapter 12. But these are just hints. It's one thing to have enemies who are out to kill you. It's another thing to voluntarily embrace death as God's will. This is what Jesus is saying here. Notice how he says, from that time jesus began to show the word began there is very significant it's not just that like you know you sometimes we use the word began in a kind of a just setting the context way like he began to make a sandwich and so we think okay so he's going he's pulling out the mayonnaise and the bread and stuff and you're just thinking about setting the context he began to do something the word here in greek is much more powerful than that it's saying from that time jesus started to say something and began to say something that he had never said before explicitly. There's a shift happening here. Jesus is now explicitly saying something that he had never explicitly said before. Yes, he is the Messiah. But what sort of Messiah is he? He's a Messiah who is going to suffer. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed." And notice he not only says that he's going to do this, he's not only just, you know, aware of the fact that this is going to happen, he's saying this is God's will. He says he must go to Jerusalem. This is the must of divine decree. This is the must of God's destiny for him, of his plan for him. And he's embracing that will. He's embracing God's foreordained plan for him and saying he must go to Jerusalem, and he must suffer many things, and he must be killed, and he must be raised on the third day. The disciples up to this point, up to verse 20, right, they have understood, they've gotten the message that Jesus is the Messiah. They've seen him do all the miracles, they've seen him feed the multitudes, they've They've gotten the message clear, and and it's very explicit for them. They know that he is the Messiah. They know he's the long-awaited one that was promised. But they have no clue about what it means for him to be the Messiah. They have the wrong idea of what it means for him to be the Messiah. And notice how Peter reacts in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is unthinkable. You cannot die. You're the Messiah. For Peter, he understands that he's the Messiah, but because he thinks the Messiah is all about glory and reigning, and remember back in those promises in the Old Testament, right? He's going to be the branch. He's going to reign wisely, and he's going to execute justice in the land, and Judah will dwell in safety, and all those wonderful promises. That's what he's expecting. I I like to think of it like this. You know how uh, in a presidential campaign, uh, I'm not going to mention any particular one, but in any, any presidential campaign, this happens all the time, right, where uh, the candidate, uh, before he's elected, has a, is surrounded by important followers, right? Maybe a senator or uh, a governor who comes out and strongly supports him. And those people who are, who are there from the beginning, those people who are supporting the candidate even before he's elected, they're attaching themselves to this candidate because their expectation is if their candidate gets elected, then they're gonna be handed the plum positions, right? They're gonna be the attorney general. They're gonna be the chief of staff. They're gonna be uh, given these great positions of honor uh, when their candidate is elected. And I think that's what Peter has in mind. I think that's what's in Peter's mind. Yes, you're the Messiah. You are the one who's going to bring in all the fulfillment of the promises of God. You're going to redeem Israel. You're going to raise an army and kick out the Romans and the nation is going to be restored to the head of the nations and all the Gentiles will come and bow down to us. This is what he's looking forward to. And so to be told, no, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die just totally contradicts his expectations and his thinking but jesus is so absolutely clear that this is not simply some accidental feature of his messiahship this is not simply some detour on the path it's it is essential to his messiahship jesus says it's so important that when he hears peter rebuke him what does jesus do verse 23 he turned and said to peter get behind me satan you are a hindrance to me For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This statement here, get behind me, Satan, is an echo almost to the very words of the same language that Jesus used way back in Matthew 4 when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Remember, Satan had offered to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, right? Here it is, you can have it all. Of course, he says, one one condition, if you bow down and worship me, And, of course, that would mean what? That would mean that Jesus would be avoiding the cross. He would be seizing the glory without first going to the cross. And so Jesus had to reject that. And Jesus said to Satan, be gone, Satan, using almost the same language here. It's the same verb, but it lacks the prepositional phrase behind me. But go away behind me, Satan. Get behind me. And so Jesus says the same thing to Peter. Now, Peter is not literally Satan, right? But... Peter is giving voice to Satan's perspective. And so when Jesus hears Peter say, This is never going to happen to you, you don't need to go to the cross, Jesus recognizes that talk. He recognizes that voice. It is the voice of Satan. And so he rebukes Satan, speaking through the person of Peter, and says, No, this is God's will. He must go to the cross. What whiplash, right? We've been looking at this wonderful passage in verses 13 to 20. Look at how wonderful it is. Peter is declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Jesus says, you are blessed, Peter, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. In fact, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build the church. It sounds so great and wonderful. And then all of a sudden, you read down one paragraph. Everything shifts in an instant. From that time, Jesus began to say something he had never said before I must die. I must suffer. And now, from being blessed, Peter was blessed. Now, he's absolutely slammed and rejected as if he was speaking on behalf of Satan. This tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you just how important this is. This tells you how important it is for Christ to go to the cross. He must go to the cross. It is part of the plan of God. In fact, not only is it part of the plan of God, he's going to the cross, not in spite of the fact that he is the Messiah. He's going to the cross precisely because he is the Messiah. That's what it means for him to be the Messiah. He must go to the cross. Now the question that comes up in our minds is, why? And our text here doesn't directly answer that question. Jesus simply brings it up and, and states it as a fact. But he doesn't really explain the reason why, at least not here in this paragraph. But if we look at the whole context of Matthew's gospel, the answer is clear. The reason he must die is because of our sins. Right, way back at the very beginning, when uh, in Matthew chapter one, when Joseph realizes that his fiancée is expecting and he doesn't know what to do, the angel comes and says to him, "Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife." He says that she will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, it's sin; it's because of our sins. That's why the cross is necessary. And then if you fast forward all the way to almost the end of the Gospel of Matthew, with Jesus in the upper room with his disciples at the Last Supper, what does he say? He says this blood is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There's the word sins again. The only way sin can be dealt with is if the Messiah lays down his life for us as a sacrifice to atone for our sins that's why he must die he must bear away our sins he must take upon himself the load of our guilt and he must endure the wrath of God and he must satisfy God's justice by bearing the punishment and taking that punishment for us in our place and that's why Jesus says when he rebukes Peter he says get behind me Satan you're a hindrance to me you're a stumbling block. You're, you're trying to prevent me from going to the cross. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, because if you understood the things of God, you would understand that this is all about the plan of salvation. And you would understand that the Messiah must lay down his life to save us from our sins. The cross goes against our natural inclinations. We want a Messiah who reigns in glory and power. And if there has to be some sort of suffering, okay, fine, but let's get it over with and go right to the glory. That's what we want. We don't want a Messiah who suffers and dies. And this is hard for us, it's hard for Peter. Peter is having a hard time wrapping his mind around this. Peter doesn't understand the depth of his sin. We don't understand the depth of our sin. We don't understand what the problem is. Peter and the disciples are thinking that the problem is something external. It's the Romans. We need to get rid of the Romans. Today, we have the same problem. We think that that the problem is something outside of us. Everyone agrees that there's a problem with humanity, but we think it's something outside. We think it's poverty, or maybe it's corporate greed, or maybe it's global warming, or whatever it is, there's some structural issue out there that we can just resolve. and We don't realize that the problem is ourselves. The problem is within us. The problem is our own sin. Jesus made that so clear in the previous chapter. Remember when he had this controversy with the Pharisees over what defiles a person. And he says, look, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's what defiles you. That's the problem that we have. And that's why Jesus must go to the cross to deal with that, sin issue in our hearts. So returning back to the big picture of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 16 is the climax of the first half of the Gospel. It's the culminating capstone, proving and declaring clearly and, and without any equivocation that Jesus is the Messiah. But it's also the turning point to the second half of the Gospel. Because from this point on, Jesus openly talks about how he must go to the cross. And how he must suffer and die. And he repeats it throughout. In chapter 17 he says it again. In chapter 20 he says it again. The son of man is going to go. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things. From the scribes and the Pharisees. And the elders of the people. And he's going to suffer and die. And be raised from the dead. From, 16, from Matthew 16 on. Jesus is marching to Jerusalem. To embrace his destiny. But it had to be clear beforehand. That's why the first 16 chapters had to be there. It had to be clear beforehand that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. We had to know that. We had to be absolutely convinced that he's the Messiah. So that then when he turns to the cross, we can now see, okay, he's going to the cross as the Messiah. And it is necessary for him to do this for us. Our lack of clarity about who Jesus is stems from our superficial understanding of sin. If we saw our sin more clearly, then we would more clearly see the necessity of Christ offering himself as the sacrifice. That's why in our worship service, we have a confession of sin and we do it every week. Yeah, there are some Sundays when you come to that confession of sin, with a feeling of guilt and you're very aware of your sin and you come burdened with your your sin and your guilt and so that confession of sin and hearing that assurance of pardon is a wonderful thing for you but there are some times when we come and we don't really feel it we come and and it doesn't seem like we're that bad okay I know I'm a sinner in theory but I'm not really that bad of a sinner and so we have that confession of sin there every week to remind us to remind us of the reality of who we are. Remember what John said in, his, in the first chapter of his first letter, 1 John chapter 1. He's saying, this is the message that we heard from Christ, and this is the message that we're proclaiming to you. He says, the message is this, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us john just boils down the message right to that core point that god is light and if we say we have no sin or if we say that maybe we do have sin but it's not that great then we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us but then he goes on to say right but if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins he says if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father which is jesus christ the righteous and he is the propitiation for our sins, He's the one that turns aside God's wrath and satisfies the justice of God because of our sins. That is the gospel, and that is what Jesus is making so clear. I love this whole paragraph, this whole section in Matthew's gospel, because to be honest with you, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, there isn't a whole lot of discussion of the atonement. There are those individual verses, right? Matthew one twenty one. He came to save His people from their sins. There's the statement at the Last Supper. This blood is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But there's not a whole lot of discussion about the atonement in the gospel. And so you might think, wow, this is an entire gospel, the gospel of Matthew. And he doesn't really talk about the atonement that much. But then when you read the story and you see how it's expressed in the narrative, suddenly it becomes clear. And this passage is so amazing because you see the reaction of jesus to any thought that he should avoid the cross and his reaction is so powerful his reaction is so stern that it makes clear that this is the most vital thing of all and that's why then the gospel concludes and all four gospels do with the story of the suffering of christ and it narrates for us the atonement it narrates for us the depth of our sin and how Christ bears our sin upon the cross and suffers for his people and then is raised again from the dead vindicated in glory and honor showing that God's that the sacrifice that Christ has offered to God the Father has been accepted and that God's law and God's justice has been satisfied and then you have the conclusion of the Gospels where the disciples go they're sent out to preach the Gospel to preach faith in Jesus Christ, repentance in his name, calling men and women to believe in him and to receive the forgiveness of sins on the basis of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for opening our eyes and causing us to see that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So often we're like Peter and we fail to grasp what sort of Messiah he is. We want a king who reigns in glory, but not a suffering servant, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Take away all that would cause us to stumble and be offended at the cross of our Lord. Take away our pride. Take away our self-deception that makes us think that we have no sin. Give us a true sense of our sin that we may truly grasp the necessity of his atoning sacrifice. Keep us near the cross. Bring its scenes before us. Help us walk from day to day with its shadow o'er us. In the cross, in the cross, be our glory ever. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.